This episode of the Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is the place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents and other aging loved ones, as we also care for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP Community, Adult Children of Aging Parents. While our programs are designed with adult children in mind, all ACAP programs are open to anyone who cares for or cares about an older adult. There are now an estimated 20 million adult children in the United States who are caring for aging parents. In addition, there are many others who care for other aging family members, neighbors, and friends. Caregivers are concerned not only about their loved ones, but also about their own life now and as they age. In this podcast, we're talking about physical activity and the prevention of cognitive decline and dementia. I am joined by Dr. Jenny Etnayar and Anne-Marie de Serafino. Dr. Etnier Dr. Etnier, Dr. Etnier is the Julia Taylor Morton Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Kinesiology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. She is currently the Principal Investigator of a $3.4 million study focused on the effects of physical activity on cognitive blood markers, cerebral dementia disease. Anne-Marie de Serafino is a gerontologist working as a service coordinator with resources for seniors in Raleigh, North Carolina. As a service coordinator, she works with older adults and their families to connect them with public and community resources that maximize seniors' independence for as long as possible. Anne-Marie is also an exercise instructor for the Physical Activity and Alzheimer's Disease Research Study, PAD2. Hi, Jenny and Anne-Marie. Thank you for being here today. And Jenny, I am sorry. I just keep not pronouncing your your last name correctly. Oh, my word. I apologize. It's no problem. I've lived with that my whole life. Not a big deal. Frances, thank you so much for having us. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad both of you are here. And and as I said earlier, with a with a uh, maiden last name of Sauce S A U S. Oh my word! It, I understand having a last name that gets pronounced and spelled all kinds of ways. We also have Miss Alexis Richmond with us as my co-interviewer. Alexis is a senior at Winston State University. With, excuse me, Winston Salem State University. She is a gerontology major and has an amazing two-year-old little boy. Alexis is interning with ACAP this semester, and we are definitely lucky to have her on this team. Hi, Alexis. I'm glad you're part of this conversation also. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. 
Jenny and Anne-Marie, there are so many families dealing with cognitive decline of a loved one. It's easy to miss early signs, but typically later, the dementia becomes obvious. Let's talk about how we may help our loved ones and ourselves delay onset or slow down cognitive decline. What do we need to know? What can we do? And are there activities or programs that can be helpful? So let's start at the beginning. What do we know about how cognition changes across the lifespan? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and I, and I think a really fascinating one to think about. Alexis will be able to relate with a two-year-old in her home because we know, obviously, that young children have really fast-paced cognitive development that continues through adolescence and into young adulthood. Um, of course, on the other end of the aging spectrum, we know that as individuals age, they start to experience some normal uh, declines in their cognitive abilities. And for most of us, those declines will be simply uh, what we would expect in, a, in accord with our aging. But for some individuals, it's going to turn into more of a clinical uh, level of impairment. Um, and so obviously, we see that increase, the likelihood of that increasing with advanced age, but also with certain genetic predictors or the experience of stroke or things of that nature. Um, I think what your listeners might find interesting to think about, though, is that Okay, so I talked about the, the, the young folks whose cognitive performance is improving and the older folks where it's declining. Many of your listeners might not see themselves as being in either of those age groups. Well, there's still things that are happening for folks between the ages of 20 and 60. And so what we typically will see is that cognitive performance tends to still improve a little bit up to about the ages of 30 or 40. But even as young as, as 40 years of age, we can start to see slight changes in the ability to perform on standardized measures of cognitive performance. And I think really intriguingly, um, if we know that people have a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, there's some evidence that shows that you can see differences in their brain structure as early as 30 years of age. So it's not as if we get through, you know, childhood and now everything's just stable and stays the same for 40 years. It, it's actually continuing to improve, you know, that the pace of improvement slows and then it might plateau for a short period of time. But then we can start to detect subtle changes that might not impact a person's um, normal life. That's really important information. That That's both consoling and a little bit scary that, um, that, that brain changes can be detected as early as 30. That's what you said? Goodness gracious. Yes. Recognizing that lifestyle behaviors have the potential to influence this change across time, what evidence is there specifically about physical activity? Yeah, and this is the part, of course, that I get really excited about because we actually have a really well-developed body of evidence that tells us that exercise can benefit cognitive performance. And what's neat about that to me is that we see that if we talk about asking somebody to perform a single session of exercise or if we're thinking about exercise as a lifestyle behavior. So if somebody were to perform 20 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, we have a lot of evidence that would lead us to believe that that would have a positive impact on their memory performance. And we've seen that across the lifespan. So relative to your first question, Francis, you know, we've got these changes across our lifespan, but exercise has been shown, a single session of exercise has been shown to benefit cognition across all of those various age groups that we were speaking of. 
Um, so I think that's really neat because it means we could be currently sedentary. We could be currently not meeting physical activity recommendations. And if we could get out and go for a 20-minute walk, we could expect to see some immediate benefits in terms of our memory. Now, the part that's maybe more intriguing to think about is, okay, so what if somebody makes a commitment to a, a behavioral, uh, a, a lifestyle behavior where they're physically active on a regular basis? And when people go from being sedentary to adopting a lifestyle where they're more physically active, we also have evidence that shows that they're going to get benefits that are more enduring in terms of their cognitive abilities and cognitive performance. And we're starting to have some evidence that shows that they also get changes in their brain structure in response to that physical activity. So it ties in again to that first question that we were talking about, Francis, in that thinking, okay, if 30-year-olds who have a genetic risk for Alzheimer's can start to experience structural changes um, that don't look good, right? But physical activity can benefit brain structure in a way that does look good. And so people who are uh, participating in physical activity regularly can really experience those be benefits. And that is incredible incentive for me and probably everyone else to move, to get up and move. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of times after, uh, after I'll share this information, a person's next question will be like, okay, well then how much should I do? How much do I need to do? And Anne-Marie and I would both say, you know, do what you can do regularly because it's the regularity of the physical activity behavior that's going to give you the benefits. So if you can build in 20 minutes of walking into your life every day, oh my gosh, that would make a huge difference for you in terms of your cognitive abilities and your physical benefits, physical health benefits. But if you could only fit it in three days a week, that's still better than nothing, right? So is walking the optimum exercise or weights or, or is, the, is it just exercise, just do something? Yeah, Anne-Marie, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say that they've even shown if, you know, if 20 minutes is intimidating to somebody, even if that it is broken up, it, maybe it's 20 minutes for the whole day and they did 10 minutes at one point and 10 minutes another, they're still reaping benefits from that. And the other thing I, I don't think, and correct me, Dr. Etnire, um, but if, if you feel differently, but there's no like specific formula that they've come up with, but by most, most research shows that a combination is ideal. So if you are, you want to get some of that cardiovascular, so um, walking, um, or maybe you enjoy swimming, but kind of find your thing, right? Find what you're going to stick with, um, but also to incorporate some strength training in with that, because there's, um, as we age, uh, you know, there's the some kind of, uh, some of our mental functions kind of um, slow down. So does our muscles, you know, we, we need to keep that, um, that muscle as much as we can. Um, and you, and we, and you can with um, some regular exercise. So really, I would say a combination. That is really good. I, I like the specificity of, okay, 20 minutes carve out 20 minutes, even if, Anne-Marie, as you were saying, even if that 20 minutes is over the course of an entire day. So, great. Okay, so both of you are involved with research. 
Uh, but the research is, is, I think, focused on Alzheimer's. Tell us why this might be important and what you hope to find. Yeah, so we're really excited about this work that we're currently conducting. And if any of your listeners are anywhere close to Greensboro, North Carolina, and think they might be eligible, we would sure love to hear from them. So what, what we're doing is we're actually looking at people who are relatively young. We're looking at recruiting people who are 40 to 65 years of age. But these individuals have a, uh, excuse me, a family history of Alzheimer's disease. And so we know that that family history of Alzheimer's disease is going to increase their risk of themselves experiencing Alzheimer's disease when they're older. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to essentially catch these folks early. So we're trying to catch them when they're cognitively normal. And we're asking them to come to UNC Greensboro uh, three times over the course of a year. And each time they come to our campus, we're measuring cognitive performance. Um, We're doing blood draws because we're interested in looking at some blood-based biomarkers that are important relative to Alzheimer's disease. And we're also doing MRI scans so that we can look at brain structure and brain function. And the other thing that we're doing is we're also getting a saliva sample that allows us to also determine the person's genetic risk for Alzheimer's. So out of the people who are in our study, some are going to, they'll all have a family history of Alzheimer's, but some are also going to have an increased risk of Alzheimer's because they have genetic markers that suggest that they're at risk for Alzheimer's disease. So what we're hoping, Francis, is to find that the individuals who get randomly assigned to our exercise program experience benefits in terms of cognition that we can observe doing our lab-based tests, that they see benefits in terms of their blood-based biomarkers that we can measure, And we also anticipate they might see benefits in terms of brain structure, because although I said that, you know, at the age of 30, we can start to see some changes in brain structure that look bad. We also know that the brain is very malleable. And so in response to physical activity, we could see improvements in brain structure and in brain function. And then the idea, although we won't be able to directly uh, assess it from our study, but the idea is that if we can improve all of these things in folks who have a genetic and family risk for Alzheimer's, then that would suggest the potential for physical activity to really work as a preventative to give these individuals more years of cognitive normality to extend their years where they have really high quality of life through participation in physical activity. That's what we think the implications are. That is important stuff. That, that, that's just, that would be amazing. And I'm just so sorry that I'm too old to participate, but... <laughs> It's um, Anne Marie could speak to it. I mean, it's a really fun study and to conduct because the folks who participate um, have such a positive response, and maybe it makes sense for Anne Marie to share a little bit of that. So, yeah, one of the things you know, I love this. You know, I love so much about the study and uh, what it the what it could reveal for us all as as we age. But you know, the study I think is just a great way that. We're bringing together people um, that share this common bond uh, of caring for a loved one. Uh, you know, some of them, maybe it was in the past, but many of them are currently caring for a loved one. Uh, you know, I had uh, one one person that kind of was. It's. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say that it's offered via Zoom. So, you know, one instance was somebody that kind of 
kind of kept moving their camera a little bit. And she finally, you know, apologized and said, it's because my, my mother lives with me. She's, she's the one who has Alzheimer's and she does the class with me. Um, and just for her privacy, I kind of turned the camera when she starts to get, <laughs> to get on camera. So, you know, I just thought it was like a beautiful example. I, I just loved everything about that. Um, it's like, that's fine. You know, just whatever you need to do. We, we love to love that you're participating in that. Um, she's there too, but it's, it's very inspirational. Um, these, these people that are, um, you know, devoting their time and participating in the study, obviously care passionately. They've been in, they've walked the walk, right. They've been in the shoes they understand. And it's not only for themselves, but they want to contribute to the research for others. So just a, an awesome group of people to be with. That's really good to know about that because I'm thinking I uh, I'm thinking of a friend. In fact, I'm thinking of two friends whose parents have Alzheimer's, and I think they would be young enough to be part of the study. So I will definitely let them know about that. Yeah, and I think I just want to add something to what Anne Marie said, and that is that um, it it is really remarkable as a scientist to see the level of commitment from our participants, and it's exactly what Anne Marie was describing, but. I honestly feel like we're a team. We're a PAD2 team of scientists, you know, people who are doing data collection, data analysis, but the participants are the most important members of our team, and they are giving so much of themselves. Um, the cognitive testing is long, you know, coming to campus mm -hmm. to have your blood drawn, that doesn't sound fun to anybody, right? But um, our participants come in so committed and so... Um, just desirous of an opportunity to contribute to our understanding of ways to prevent Alzheimer's. How wonderful. How wonderful. This is such great information, you all. But let's take this a bit further and talk for a moment about looking at this from a, a broader perspective. Why is the conduct why is the conductance of scientific studies important? Yeah, that's a fun question to think about. And I know Anne-Marie would like to respond to this as well, but I'll, I'll just get us started. So, um, you know, it's, it is critical for us to understand more about the causal pathway between physical activity and the cognitive benefits that we expect to observe. Um, it's also critical for us to learn more about for whom these benefits um, can be achieved, right? So, um, you know, in our study, we are randomly assigning people to either be in the exercise condition or the control condition for a whole year. If they're assigned to the control condition, they're asked to maintain their normal lifestyle, which means that they are not meeting uh, the current physical activity recommendations. So we ask them to maintain that normal lifestyle for a year. Um, but for those who are assigned to the exercise group, of course, we start them in an exercise program that's three days a week um, that includes strength training and walking. And the reason I'm sharing that is because this is a strength of our study that we're using what's called a true experimental design in which people are randomly assigned to the, to the arms of the study so that at the end of the study, if we do find benefits in response to exercise, we'll be able to say with confidence that it was the physical activity that caused those benefits, that there was a direct causal link between the physical activity program we asked them to participate in and the cognitive benefits they achieved. And if we find out more about the biomarkers that are responsible for these changes, then you can imagine that could have implications for therapies that might involve a combination of a pharmacological intervention 
with physical activity participation. Because if we identify the biomarkers that matter, then maybe there's some combined intervention that could um, enhance the effects even further. If we see changes in brain structure in response to exercise, then that gives us the um, indication that, okay, if somebody else did a study on some, with some other sample of people and they found out that they got bigger brain changes by doing you know, twice as much exercise as we did in pad two, well, if we're seeing the same brain changes but not on the same magnitude, then we might say, oh boy, if we were going to do this study again, we would double the exercise dose to see if we get better cognitive benefits. So it's all about, you know, we answered one of your early questions by saying we don't really know like the specific prescription of exercise to give, but every study that we're doing is informing us more about understanding those relationships better. Like how would we prescribe it? And one day we will have enough information, I feel confident, to say this is really the ideal. You know, this is really the ideal amount of physical activity of cognitive benefits is your, is your outcome of interest. But let me let Anne-Marie jump in, too, because I know she has another way of, of thinking about this question. Well, I guess um, my, you know, I'm, I'm in the community, right? And I'm very interested in community programs for older adults and for their caregivers, how we're building resiliency in the community for these um, communities. And everything is based on evidence-based research for good reason, right? You want, you want that scientific knowledge when you're putting together programs. So, you know, I would say that this type of research and there's other, you know, great research being done too, but this, these types of research are what build kind of this, this volume of evidence-based knowledge so that we're making the best decisions when we're putting together programs for the community and the participants then also have this reassurance, right? That, you know, we, this is what we're basing this on. It's not just, hmm, okay, exercise feels good, everybody, let's go exercise, right? <laughs> um, we have some real scientific information behind it um, when we put things together in the community. Uh, you know, a couple of things keep com- coming through my mind. One is that I can see a time that you go to your doctor and that your doctor writes a prescription. Here is a pharmaceutical, but here also is a prescription for exercise or for activity, for movement. Yeah, what a what an incredible, um, I- incredible progress that will be. Um, yeah, this is fascinating. So, Anne-Marie, you, you just were talking about some of the things you're, you're being in the community. Uh, you provide exercise intervention to the participants. Talk a little about their experience in terms of fitness gains, but also other, other benefits. Sure. Yeah. So, so each group, each cohort goes for a year. Right. Um, and it is so exciting to see we start on a very uh, a low level of band, the lightest resistance and uh, a lower, lower amount of reps. And then we gradually build. So it's a very, very safe, safely done. And it is amazing how much people progress within that year with the strength training. They, you know, they go from the lightest band to the heaviest band. Um And, you know, I've even had one participant who during the course got COVID and came and said that she really felt it was a much milder pace for her because she was in the study and she was doing the exercise, uh, which is, you know, awesome. Uh, But as an instructor, you know, I want 
personally and coming from you know a gerontology background, I wanted the gains to be on a broader level um, when you see this the socialization aspect of it and the building of self-reliance and resiliency. Uh, resiliency and coping skills are you know, obviously very important, both for older adults and in caregivers. And I see how these are built within this um, exercise format. I did an informal survey of participants, and I found it really interesting that none of them were in um, support groups. None of them were using on a consistent basis any of the dementia-related organizations. So I feel like this Coming to, we're coming together three times a week in the strength training. And as I mentioned earlier, we all share this common bond. I mean, I also have had personally a uh, loved one you know, with dementia. So we kind of come together and I feel like we're, we're creating this kind of safe space, um, and especially during COVID times, uh, that we can come together and we're exercising. And it's almost like its own support group in a way. Um, and that's that's been extremely uh, rewarding for me to see for my participants. Yeah, it's interesting that that we're talking about this. Um, several months ago, a friend had been working with a personal trainer. And because I know that my typical lifestyle is very sedentary, sitting in front of a computer hours and hours and hours a day, that I started with a personal trainer. And in a very short period of time, I have been able to see incredible progress physically. And I know that every day that I do 30 minutes with my personal trainer, with him, that I just feel better emotionally. So, so yeah, I, this is all just fascinating to me and certainly singing my song. Well, and I, and I think one other thing I'll say, and it really is just echoing what you just said, Francis, but that is... Um, Anne Marie alluded to this, but but we the, the the participants in our study see these strength gains relative gains relative to the therabands that they're using. But I think what's more impactful is when they share with us the changes that it's making in their activities of daily living. So I remember a participant, for instance, telling me that her laundry was in the basement, and that it used to be hard for her to carry the you know the 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 basket of clothes up and down the stairs. And that as a part of being, you know, enrolled in this regular strength training, which again is just TheraBands. So, I mean, folks can do this on their own in their own homes. They don't have to belong to a fancy gym. They can do it at home. And if you just use a, you know, a progressive system where you're being careful and you're, you're making sure that you're, um, you know, not, not pushing yourself too far too fast, then you can gradually increase in ways that are going to be reflected, as you were alluding to, Francis, in your everyday world. So whether that means you can carry something heavy further, right, or that your mood is better, or that you're remembering things more easily. You know, all of these benefits we know accrue in response to regular physical activity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And particularly, Anne-Marie, as you're saying, to do that with another person, even if it's just one other person, um, or to do it within a group, that, that there is that socialization piece and that community and support piece, as well as the physical and emotional. Uh, yeah, in fact, my personal trainer is a young man who says that, that he does not work exclusively with an older population, but his real mission is to make sure that people can get, can get up from a chair as we age. 
mm-hmm. um, that we can get up from a bed or a toilet or, you know, that we have that kind of strength in us. And it's bands and very light weights. I mean, this is no big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, something I keep telling my folks, keep doing those squats. <laughs> squats are super important. Um, oh, and I, I guess <laughs> <laughs> the other, I guess, and we, and I should, I guess, another way of saying the same thing that we we've, we've been talking about. You know, when you're looking at in like in gerontology, you talk about wellness and all the dimensions of wellness, and it's true for anyone, right? Um, it's not just for the older population, but like. One of the things I guess I get so excited about because I feel like this type of exercise format, you're benefiting obviously physically, right? And um, really helping prolong as far as you know, your activities of daily living um, and in those physical aspects as you age. But it really, in, you know, the emotional, the mental, the socialization, I mean, it just really helps you in so many ways with, um, with your wellness from, from many different angles. And if in the meantime, we are delaying or helping ameliorate the cognitive decline that we can't see necessarily at this point that we wouldn't see until much later, holy moly, what a, an incredible gift that is for now and later. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great comment. I mean, I think, you know, one of the one of the powerful things about exercise is exactly what you two are both speaking of, which is you can see immediate benefits, right? And so maybe not if you've been sedentary for a long time and you go out to exercise for the first time, maybe it's not going to feel that great. You know, don't don't push it. Don't start so hard that you then say, "Well, that was no fun and I'll never do that again," <laughs> right? Do something that's reasonable for your first time if you've been sedentary for a long time. And then once you start at a reasonable level, look for times when you can start to increase it just a little bit, just a little bit. I mean, by minutes, right? I'm not talking about half hour, hour. I'm talking go from a 10-minute walk to maybe a 10-minute walk twice a day, like Anne-Marie was saying, or go from a 10-minute walk to a 12-minute walk. Um, And what's important is that as that becomes a regular part of your daily habits, you will experience, as Anne-Marie was saying, positive mood effects on that day right? When you get home and, and maybe it's just the sense of mastery or maybe it's something biological that's happening inside as you move, right? Either way, you have this positive experience afterwards and use that as a way to build on doing it more. And then what you're talking about, Francis, is the most important, I think, which is use those short-term benefits where it feels good to be a, a, a reward system that allows you to make it a regular part of your life over the long term, because then you're really going to accrue some important physical and mental health benefits. Absolutely. This is all just so much good information that we're receiving today. So overall, what message do you want our listeners to carry with them regarding physical activity? Yeah, I'm probably uh, beating a dead horse a little bit, but um, it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard to not just say again. Um, you know, physical activity is such an important lifestyle behavior, and almost everybody listening to this podcast knew before they joined us that physical activity was good for you, right? That's not a well kept secret. Everybody knows that. The challenge is that the behavior of physical activity is hard for people to adopt in a permanent way. And 
Um, I don't know if it's harder or not with COVID. I think there are challenges that came from COVID. You know, we're, we're more stressed. We're more, uh, have more anxiety. If we used to work out in a gym, the gym closed for a long period of time. Um, but I've also seen the flip side to that, which is there, there are more people out walking in my neighborhood. There are more people on bicycles. In the state of North Carolina, we know that the um, attendance at state parks was up by like some astronomical number compared to previous years. And it's because the, the indoor sedentary things that we would have done prior to COVID on a regular basis, going to the movies, going out to eat, you know, maybe going to a mall, whatever it is, those things closed down for a time period. And so folks were uh, probably going stir crazy in their own homes. And it was a motivator to get them outside to be physically active. So as, as life starts to come back to normal, um, you know, the, the big test, I guess, will be if people can continue to maintain their physical activity behaviors as all the old stuff starts to come back in, right? And um, I guess I just want to say again that the most important thing about physical activity is to find something that you like so that you can keep up with it, right? So Anne-Marie said swimming. Well, if you love swimming and you have access to a facility where you can swim, a YMCA or a, a swim club, that's great. I personally don't love swimming. Like that would not work for me. If somebody said you have to start a swimming program, as much as I would love to be committed to physical activity, the swim program would not work for me. But I love to ride a bicycle and I love to walk. So those are the things that I make sure are part of my day. The other thing I think that's really important is to schedule exercise into your day. Um, the people who tend to be regular exercisers, actually, well, let me, let me say this a different way. People who are not regular exercisers will often tell you that the number one barrier to exercising is a lack of time. But studies have shown objectively that people who exercise actually have more commitments. They have more time commitments than the folks who are saying they don't have enough time to exercise. So the difference is that the folks who are exercising regularly have built it into their day. And so it's a scheduled time when they make sure that they get their physical activity. For me, I'll tell you something that really works, and this um, ties into something Anne-Marie said a minute ago, or maybe you said it actually, Francis, which is, you know, the importance of exercising with a partner. I walk with my daughter. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and we walk together probably about five days out of seven. Part of why I make sure I walk is because it's so important for me that she walks, you know? Some people have a dog. Boy, if you have a dog, you have a commitment to walk, right? So, you know, just having that other person or being that you can make a commitment to, whether that's a friend or a family member or a pet, you know, or, or, a, or a group that you exercise with that is happy when you show up each week, you know, those sorts of things can really help you to maintain that commitment. Yeah, you're talking about those commitments. I have a friend who typically clocks 11,000, 12,000 steps a day because she has a dog. Mm -hmm. that she mm -hmm. has to go walk. Yeah. So the other, only other thing I guess I would add to that is from you know, my perspective, working in the community with you know, older adults and uh, their caregivers, adult children every day, you see the need for resiliency and coping skills. And you know, I know everyone doesn't love to go out and exercise. We're not saying that you need to become a gym rat or go run a marathon, but just saying that there's so much scientific evidence and building scientific evidence that shows the tremendous potential of moderate exercise where, you know, we're talking about walking or activities that 
fit into your life that you enjoy. There's just so much potential in that, not only for the obvious physical benefits, but it's going to build resiliency and coping skills as you age. Um, and then obviously for older adults, um, all the way to, to um, their caregivers. And, you know, I would just add that kind of from the gerontology perspective, when you think about that, the fastest growing segment with an older adults is that what we call the oldest of old, the 85 plus age group. Wow, you're going to have more and more people in their 60s taking care of adult, their parents still. So we all, we, we all need to get on it, right? <laughs> we all need to be building those, um, those patterns in our life that are going to kind of that self-care concept, right? We, we, uh, it, it could be a, a, a long, a long steady journey for us. So we need to build everything we can, uh, for our self-care. And I believe moderate exercise is just a tremendous potential for that. Before we end, let me ask one more question, and that is a lot of people talk about housework or gardening, yard work, being their exercise. Does that, how, how does that fit into this whole realm of, you know, 10 minutes of walking or 10 minutes of movement? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, we, we believe that accumulated physical activity, even when it's low intensity, like you're talking about, is beneficial. Um, that being said, I'm not sure that most of us do as much housework and yard work as we might <laughs> think. Uh, so, you know, there's so many modern conveniences. You know, we're not standing up to wash dishes because we've just put them in the dishwasher, right? We're not washing clothes by hand. We're putting it in a machine. So, um, and if we're gardening and we're just going out and weeding for 20 minutes, that is good. That's sure better than, sure better than nothing. And uh, it is going to have health benefits. But I just think it's important for people to maybe self-reflect and gain a little bit of a self-awareness about how much time they're actually being active compared to how much time they're being sedentary. And I guess one other thing I'll say that Anne-Marie and I haven't talked about that much, but we do know that there is an added detrimental effect from sedentary time, right? So we know that just standing is better for us than sitting or lying down all day. Um, and so, so again, you know, I, 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 I want to make sure I say this clearly, Francis, the gardening, the housework, all of those things are positives, right? But if you can add to that a little bit more, or if you can lengthen the duration of time that you're spending gardening, um, that can make a big difference. And one of the things, I'll just say this too, because I get, I get on this a little bit, but I would guess that as a result of the COVID pandemic, we know that people aren't eating out as much. That means that they may be eating in more. And I just think eating in by itself is a lot more activity, right? Like, just think about it. Somebody is standing up to do the prepping. Somebody is standing up to do the cooking. Somebody is standing up to do the serving. Hopefully, the children and everybody are helping to do the cleaning of the, or the clearing of the table and the loading of the dishwasher and the washing of the dishes. And I mean, I just think about what a small thing that is. But if it's more activity for the whole family, that, you know, that, that's helping everybody. And so I, I don't know what point I was really trying to make there, except to say that the, the low-intensity, non-sedentary activities help. But 
add to that as you can the moderate intensity activities and the strength training that's purposeful and you'll be amazed at the benefits you'll see. This is such great, great information and truly has motivated me, unlike anything else I have read or heard or know, to get up instead of sitting at the computer 8, 10, 12 hours a day at minimum to stand a lot more. So so I am really grateful personally for this podcast, as well as uh, I am sure this is going to be really, really good for lots of people. Um, I want to thank you in particular, Dr. Jenny Etnier, I finally get that right, and Anne-Marie DeSerafino. Thank you so very much excellent insight and information about cognitive decline and dementia. And Alexis, thank you for being with us also. We realize that this topic is way beyond the scope of this podcast, but we're excited to help listeners understand how physical activity can help prevent or at least delay cognitive decline and dementia. For you, our listeners, we hope this information will be helpful to you. If you know of others you believe would benefit from this podcast, please do share it with them. And if you have ideas for other podcast topics, please let us know. Before we end, we definitely want to say thanks to Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, our sponsor for this and all of our ACAP podcasts. We are indeed grateful for their support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more of the Caregiver Community Podcast on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we hope you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP, our educational programs, and our local chapters. And if there are other topics you'd like for us to address as a podcast, Again, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our background, our education, our career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, caring for and advocating for that person becomes very personal and extremely important. So please care well for your loved ones, but also remember to take care of you and move move, get some activity every day. Stay well. Bye for now.